Welcome back to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation UK with me, Will DeFratis. And me, Annabelle Bly. Now, unless you've been living under some kind of rock, there's one issue dominating the news in the UK at the moment. Yep, Euro 2016 begins on June no, 9th Will. with host Hold France on. taking on Romania. Not football, no. not the football. Not Important football. though that is, there's another major European event taking place this month. That's Britain's referendum on the European Union. Ah, yes, of course. We're currently in the countdown to June the 23rd, when the British public will vote to stay in or out of the EU. Needless to say, it is a big deal. That's why this episode of The Ant Hill is dedicated to the Brexit debate. For too long, those we have elected to represent us have been able to confuse, confound and obfuscate by hiding behind the smokescreen of chaff that is the European Union and its bewildering array of institutions and powers. The problem for Europe is that in Britain, as in most other countries, people don't really identify themselves as European first and foremost. A lot of companies come to the UK mainly because they want to serve the European market, and this is the export platform for which they serve the European market. Now, something we've been really aware of as we've covered this debate is how confusing it can be with neither side really being particularly constructive. Yep, on the one hand, you've got the Remain campaign, led by UK Prime Minister David Cameron, accusing those in the Leave camp of lying to the public about the consequences of a Brexit. But on the other hand, you've got those advocating for Leave, warning voters not to be taken in by what they call Project Fear, and to have faith in the country's ability to stand on its own two feet. To cut through some of the spin, exaggeration and outright nonsense, we've turned to our academic experts. First off, as we're an international bunch at the conversation, we're aware that some people may be asking, why is Britain having this referendum in the first place? And that includes our city's editor and resident Australian, Emily Brown. People in the UK have been bombarded with talk of Brexit for months, while the rest of the world looks on with a sense of bemusement. When I talk to friends and family from back home in Australia, they ask me, why is the UK even having a referendum? Here today to help me answer this question is Andrew Scott Crines, lecturer in British politics at the University of Liverpool. Put simply, the issue of Britain in Europe has never really been settled since we joined in 1973. There have always been disputes of how and why Edward Heath was so keen to get us into the EU. In fact, a couple of years later, we had a referendum on whether we should come out of the common market after spending years trying to get into it partly because it had never really been sold to the British public. Now, if you fast forward to today, these issues have been grumbling through the Conservative Party throughout the 80s, intensifying through the 90s, remaining there in the first decade of the 21st century, but were given rocket boosters by the Lisbon Treaty and the way in which a referendum was promised at that point but was not delivered. As a result, the right in the Conservative Party exploded. And the way that David Cameron has chosen to manage that is to promise this in-out referendum as a way of placating the party to keep it happy. Unfortunately, as we got closer to the referendum date, issues of immigration with the migration crisis particularly have been thrown onto the agenda uh, in a way which initially may not have been foreseen. But those that are calling for Britain to leave are pointing more now towards issues of immigration, to uh, ideas of a British exceptionalism and British identity and that we need to protect those things because they are being threatened by an influx of immigration. But increasingly it looks as though Britain is going to choose to remain. Okay, 
I was interested in the point you raised about British exceptionalism. As far as most of the rest of the world is concerned, Britain is a European country. So why do British people think that it's somehow different and special? And will having a referendum resolve those issues? To take the second point first, uh, no, having a referendum is unlikely to resolve these issues. But the reason that we regard ourselves as exceptional, or the reason that some do anyway, is that we've never really embraced a genuine sense of cohesive European identity, which across the continent they have done so. There's a sort of sense of togetherness. And also Britain has an imperial hangover, which it believes makes it an exceptional country and therefore different to the rest of the European Union. Is there a clear split on this topic between left-wing and right-wing voters, or are there some left-wing voters who would also like to leave the EU? There are certainly some left-wing voters that would like to leave the EU because they have the idea that once we are outside of the European Union, uh, somehow that will enable a more fair and social democratic society to emerge in Britain because they argue that the EU is effectively a capitalist club and that for as long as we are part of the EU, we cannot have a genuinely fair system. The only issue with that argument is it's completely false because Britain would be more likely to become more libertarian and more free market orientated if we were to be outside of the EU, which would undermine some of those rights that they argue that we would be able to protect. So the kind of Britain that we would be outside of the EU is not the kind of Britain that people on the left think it would be. Yeah, I can see how this independent, sovereign, socialist paradise argument is appealing, but this seems like it's not really the right moment, particularly when the options for left-wingers to consider are David Cameron and Boris Johnson. Well, to take us deeper into the issues at stake, our politics and society editor Laura Hood has been speaking with some academics who are living and breathing this Brexit debate. Brace yourselves for an in-depth discussion that brings in the economics, politics and all important emotions. You'd be forgiven for thinking that we haven't learnt much at all about the EU or Britain's place in it during the referendum campaign. Both sides stand accused of spreading misinformation and failing to produce concrete answers on the most pressing questions. Luckily, we've got a panel of academics who spend a lot of time thinking about this. We've asked them to help us get a better idea of what the implications of the EU referendum actually are, whether the British public votes to leave or to remain. With me in the studio are Ian Preston, Professor of Economics at University College London, and Dr Swati Dingra, a lecturer also in economics at the LSE. On the line from the University of Essex is Paul Whiteley, a professor in the School of Government there. Thanks everyone for joining me. I want to start with one of the most hotly contested issues in this debate, um, what happens to the British economy and the European economy in the event of a Brexit. Swati, perhaps I could start by putting that to you. So the most direct channel through which the Brexit would affect the British economy would be through reduced trade and investment. So one thing we would see would be that there would be less trade between EU and the UK, primarily because trade costs would rise. And this could come up in different ways. So one option is that we go to a Norwegian-type model after Brexit, which is we continue to be part of the European economic area, but not part of the European Union. If that happens, then tariff barriers won't rise. But what will happen would be that non-tariff barriers would still come into play, which would mean things like suddenly regulations start to diverge from the European Union, 
so it becomes harder for UK exporters to ship goods to the EU and vice versa. The other option that might happen is if we don't have a Norwegian-style deal or even a Swiss-style deal, the default would be we might we would become members of the WTO and interact with the European Union through the WTO. We are already members of the WTO, so it would be that the same tariff barriers that apply to Brazil or China or to the US will also apply to goods that go from the UK to the European Union. Other than that, there would also be non-tariff barriers which are already in play and they would be much higher because suddenly Britain would lose its passporting privilege to do financial services with the EU. How about people that say that there's a big wide world out there beyond Europe? We can deal with China, we can do trades with India. What proportion of uh, of our trade is, is European trade? So 50% of our trade roughly is European trade. 50%? Yes, it's our largest trading partner. It's also our largest investment partner. About half of our international inflows of investment come in from the European Union. And even beyond that, a lot of companies come to the UK mainly because they want to serve the European market, and this is the export platform for which they serve the European market. But even putting that question aside about what happens to just the European sort of trade, there's also this question of, can we just somehow reorient towards, say, China or India or the US, which are bigger, faster growing economies? We can do that even now. Nothing stops us from trading with China, with India or with the United States. But there is this question of, is the European Union constraining us from striking better trade deals with China, India, or the US. And here I would argue that it's a very optimistic view to think that somehow if UK went alone, it would get a better deal than what the EU would get on behalf of the UK. And the main reason is the trade agreements are really about things like harmonizing regulations and not so much about tariff barriers anymore. And there are a lot about who has the stronger voice in the negotiation. The European Union is six times the size of the UK market, so it's much more likely that it would get a better deal than what the United States and the UK would be able to strike for the UK alone. And what do you make of of arguments amongst Brexiters who suggest that Germany will not be put off selling us their cars and France will not be put off selling Britain its wine if we leave the EU? Is that something that you would agree with? So I don't think it would be a collapse of trade it would become just a lot harder to trade with the rest of the European Union. And the main reason is that, so I'll give you an example of UK cars. So UK makes a lot of cars currently. A lot of them are shipped to the European Union. They serve German, French, Italian consumers. Suppose we did Brexit and there is in fact either a Norwegian-style deal or a WTO-style deal. Under a Norwegian-style deal, we continue to ship them tariff-free, but we will face rules of origin requirements when we ship to the European Union. If instead we go to the World Trade Organization type scenario, we would also have to ensure that we base 8 to 10% of tariffs. And that now starts to call into question, would car companies that locate in the UK be willing to pay those tariffs or would they want to relocate to, say, Paris? And I think that's really the concern here, that a lot of the effects may come from relocation of international companies. Mm. It it seems that, um, you know, there are naturally a lot of rules involved in international trade. And perhaps the Brexit debate has sort of gone along the lines of, oh, well, rules can be bent. Um, Germany, you know, it will make an exception for us or Germany will continue to want to do trade with us because Britain is exceptional and excellent. But it does sound like, you know, there are they're just simply rules that just can't be broken and just won't be broken. So I think the basic rules about what trade costs 
would be faced by the UK when it ships goods or when Germany ships goods to the UK, I think those will stay in place the way they are for everybody else. In terms of whether the UK might do some kind of sweetheart deal the way Switzerland did 40 years ago, I think it would be less likely today than it was 40 years ago, primarily because if the UK gets a really good deal, it sets off this chain reaction, which is that the French now suddenly want to renegotiate, the Danish want to renegotiate their terms with the European Union, and so on and so forth. I think that's that would be widely accepted by um, most economists as the right way of looking at things. And I think the effects of some of the worst case scenarios that you've been describing are really quite substantial and really very worrying and they're permanent. And I think this is not really coming across as strongly as it should in, um, in public debate on these matters. It's coming across a little as if there's disagreement between economists. Some of them think one way, some of them think the other. I think overwhelmingly people are very, very worried about the size of, of what some of these effects could be and the harm it could do to the economy. Paul, these issues are extremely complex and involve quite a lot of numbers. I wondered if you have a view on how effectively they are being uh, relayed to the voting public, how, how important issues, these issues will be when they come to vote. Yes, the campaign hasn't exactly been enlightening up to this point. <laughs> um, one way of uh, thinking about this is to ask the question, what is it that's going on when people are making judgments about staying or leaving, or for that matter, in other European countries, making judgments about increasing the size of the EU, which is what's happened in the past. On the whole, if you look at it in relation to the economy, people who are highly skilled, well-educated, are mobile, have skills that are, uh, you know, can be marketed across the European Union, favour Britain remaining. Whereas people who are not, aren't very well-skilled not very well educated, don't have these marketable skills, tend to be against remaining. They want to get out. So there's a predictable relationship between people's social status and their economic position and their attitudes. The second dimension, though, is about identities. Who do people identify with? A lot of people identify with the nation state. They identify themselves in Britain, less so as British, and more so as English, Welsh, and especially in Scotland, as Scottish. Now, the evidence suggests that if you just identify yourself only as English or only as Welsh, you're likely to be a Brexiter. If, as part of your identity, you think of yourself as partly European, not necessarily very European, but a bit European, that's more likely to mean that you're you will support remain. So identities, how people feel about their attachments to Europe um, is an important factor. The problem for Europe is that in Britain, as in most other countries, people don't really identify themselves as European first and foremost. A very small percentage do. So Europe hasn't got the loyalty and identity that it needs to be cohesive. And that's one of the weaknesses across Europe. But Britain is particularly less likely to identify with Europe compared with other countries. One person who isn't feeling any confusion about where his loyalties lie is Professor Bill de Rodier, head of the Department of Politics, Languages and International Studies at the University of Bath. Let's just take a break from our panel for a moment to hear from him about why he really wants out of the EU. And it's not for the reasons you might expect. 
I will be voting leave on the 23rd of June, not because I believe we will be better off, either financially or politically, but because doing so is the only way to clarify who really ought to be held to account by the people of Britain today. For too long, those we have elected to represent us have been able to confuse, confound and obfuscate by hiding behind the smokescreen of chaff that is the European Union and its bewildering array of institutions and powers. The EU is not to blame for many of the ills it is accused of by the Leave lobby. It is our own politicians who ultimately decide to implement its rulings and regulations. They should be exposed as such and made to be responsible. Don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-Europe. That makes no sense. How could one oppose a geographical area? What's more, I'm French, my brother is married to a German. I could go on. It's the EU that is the problem here. Nor do I support the fear tactics employed by both sides to this debate. Rather, I put my trust in ordinary people who, like me, appreciate the diversity that Europe offers while recognising that it is the EU that acts as a barrier to them. If to be part of a collective makes us stronger and more secure than going it alone, then the only grouping that would make sense would be a world union rather than a European one that excludes so many. Amazingly, the Scottish National Party and Plaid Cymru, the Party of Wales, argue to be in one union, the EU, but not another, the UK. Go figure. The EU today does not make us more secure anyway. Just witness how long it has dithered over the situation in Syria and elsewhere. Just because something is progressive at one moment in time does not make it so for all time. The EU was forged by nation-states who themselves emerged from the struggles of ordinary people to establish systems of governance for them and accountable to them. By subsuming themselves to the diktats of Brussels, these nation-states have become member-states, answerable to a supposedly higher calling, but certainly not us anymore, as the EU, rather than being constituted by the people, is now largely an apparatus for managing and controlling the people. The EU is just too remote to ordinary people's concerns and their lives to be workable. What is workable remains to be deliberated over, but by us, when we stand on our own two feet next month and vote to leave. An impassioned call for freedom there from Bill de Rodier. Let's turn back to the panel to talk about another hot-button issue, immigration. So let's delve into that um, a little bit. Ian Preston, it's something you think about quite a lot. Would leaving the EU reduce the number of EU migrants? Well, I think it depends very much which of the options that Swati was talking about earlier are the ones that come about out of of the negotiations that followed um, Brexit, if that's what happens. I think if we were to go down the Norwegian route that she talked about first of all, there'd probably be very little big impact on immigration because the sort of deal that Norway has is um, it has to accept free movement of people. So, so be Norway little difference continues there. to take EU, EU migrants in as workers? Um, yeah, indeed, yes. Okay. And I think yeah, it takes uh, high numbers yes, of, of uh, migrants in. If we went down the, to the other extreme, towards the WTO-type um, um, outcome that you described, there there'd be much more freedom to restrict, to, uh, restrict immigration from Europe. The worry that I have is that if we do go for Brexit, then it's going to have been driven in large part by people's attitudes towards immigration. It'll be a victory for the sort of people who want immigration restricted, and the sort of um, deal that would need to be struck in order to um, actually be able to do something about immigration would be that's the sort of WTO-type outcome, which is the most economically damaging in all of the uh, estimations that have been done by various people of, of what the impact of Brexit would be. These are the ones that are most harmful to uh, the economy. Uh, I don't personally think that, that there'd be any economic gains from uh, what from restricting immigration, uh, but substantial economic losses from uh, what needs to be done in terms of uh, 
about the deals with regard to trade that would have to be struck. Swati, do you have any sense of, is EU migration uh, a drain on the British economy or is it actually a positive? So in terms of the numbers that we've looked at, what we tend to find is that most studies that look at what is the impact of immigration in general, international immigration, on the economy that takes in these migrants, you tend to find that, in fact, productivity goes up in these economies. And in the case of the best estimates that we have for Britain, what we tend to find is that there's about a 1.6% gain that you get from having EU immigrants in the country. Say we were to um, restrict all uh, migration from the EU, what kind of model could we replace it with? Would we need to fill up numbers with non-EU migration? I think we don't know exactly what's going to happen because uh, part of this this whole the whole debate that's going on is is that there are many different Brexit possibilities and it's not being made clear what would um, um, what would follow. Different people talk about different things. Some people in favour of Brexit talk about increasing immigration, allowing more skilled immigration from outside Europe. Um, at, at the same time as restricting, say, unskilled immigration from within Europe. Um, but other people just seem, and I think voters who are voting for Brexit, probably just want to shut down immigration of all sorts, um, you know, considerably relative to what's happening. Paul, what, what forces are at play here when people develop these views about EU migrants? People are divided about immigration, but there's a peculiar psychology to it. There's a very strong consensus that there's too many immigrants coming into Britain and that the governments, successive governments, have not handled this properly. And this is one of the drivers of Euroscepticism. But if people know immigrants and live near immigrants, they tend to be much more tolerant about it. So in other words, people in general dislike immigration, but they often quite like immigrants. So there's a disconnect between what they see at the societal level and their personal experience. And, and that's, incidentally, one of the reasons why regions that support or areas of the country that are more likely to support UKIP and more likely to be a Eurosceptic in elections, in some cases, have less immigrants, much less immigrants than other areas. So London tends to be in favor of remaining, whereas some of the coastal towns in the east, where there isn't that much immigration, tend to be against it. So there's a there's a strange psychology at work here, and it's all about fear of the other and a feeling we've lost control of uh, our borders more than racial prejudice. I mean, there is a bit of racial prejudice, yes, but that's not the major thing. And this, of course, is echoed across the whole of Europe. And we saw in response to the migration crisis coming across the Mediterranean, countries like Austria and the Balkans very rapidly putting up barriers whereas Germany took a different view. I think what the European Union, you know, the failure to deal with this issue, and it's a management issue, and it's an issue arising from a lack of central authority and power in the European Union, has fed the Eurosceptic feeling in Britain to some extent. Ian, in the event of a Remain, do do you believe that uh, Euroscepticism will continue uh, regardless? Yes, I don't don't think... um... Arguments about immigration will be settled at all by it. I mean, 
we will have voted to remain, but we will know that many people have done that re reluctantly with regard to um, um, questions about immigration. If we do remain, then we'll then free movement will still be part of the of um, the arrangement that we're tied into, and um, there will continue to be large flows of people uh, within uh, the EU. And it will continue to be a um, an issue. And I agree with uh, with Paul about it. That cultural impact is important, um, uh, is very important part of this. From having looked at um, um, survey data on opinions, and even though I'm an economist and my interest is mainly on the economic impact of this, the the biggest um, associations between people's attitudes towards immigration and what they feel about the effects of immigration is with their um, feelings on the impact of immigration on social tensions, on uh, social homogeneity and things like that, much more than it is with, with their perceptions about how wages or unemployment or anything like that is affected. But is a vote to remain potentially a message saying that we are a pro-immigration country and is there a need to move towards a greater acceptance of it as part of our existence as, as a European country? Well, I would like to think that because if from an economic point of view, I think migration is hugely beneficial, actually, contrary to popular perception. Um, but um, if we do vote to remain, then sort of people will no longer be able to say, as you often hear them saying, that, that the country has been taken into an acceptance of free movement without anyone ever being consulted about it. Obviously, that will no longer be the case and we will have voted to um, remain within the EU and part of that is acceptance of free movement but the arguments will still go on people will not be happy Spotty, is this does this sort of smack of a two-speed europe here and um, we kind of quite often welcome in uh, young entrepreneurs from america um, even from china even from india too um, but we we're sort of sending a message that we we don't want a certain type of um, immigrant to come to this country absolutely and many of the brexit campaigners like preeti patel Who's the, who's the Minister for Employment, have precisely said that they want to welcome high-skilled immigrants from anywhere in the world, but they want to essentially restrict EU immigrants that don't have a certain level of education or skills. So in that sense, yes, there is this belief that somehow the, the kinds of immigrants that come into the country should be something that Britain should control. Okay, so I just, I also want to talk a little bit about what's happening in Europe while we're all talking about British identity and our future. We've naturally spent a lot of time thinking about whether or not we are European, but a recent poll from Ipsos suggests that there is growing appetite amongst the general public in other European countries to hold their own referendums. The Italian public, 58% said that they would like to have their own referendum on leaving the EU. And in France, the figure was 55%. Is there potential for our referendum to trigger further referendums in other European countries? Paul, do you have a view on that? What a lot of people are doing is thinking, well, is this the club that we should be a member of? And some have decided no, but a lot across the Europe as a whole are starting to ask the question we should be asked because they see the context has changed so much. The neglected dimension is people's attachments and feelings of patriotism, um, if you like, to a society. There isn't that. It isn't there in, in enough strength to carry the European Union through hard times. Um, you know, the Great Depression in the United States in the 1930s meant that at one stage, I think 20 to 25% of Americans were unemployed. 
but they didn't turn on the national government. They didn't turn on the United States and think we should secede and so on because there was this common strength of identity and patriotism. And it isn't there in Europe. Now, having said that, it is growing a bit over time because you find that European, young Europeans are more in favor of EU integration. They feel more European. Young people in this country, if they vote in the referendum, are much more likely to vote to remain than to leave. It's the kind of thing that needs building over generations. It takes a long time to do this. Swati, what are your thoughts on, on how um, the European Union can move forward after this referendum, particularly in terms of the Eurozone crisis and the countries involved in that, um, as opposed to those who are on the outside of it, like Britain? So I think the fact that Britain does have an opt-out from the Eurozone and that it's retained its own currency already puts us in a very good position relative to the rest of the European countries that are members of the Eurozone. And if Britain were to renegotiate after an exit with the European Union, it's going to be much less likely that it gets some kind of opt-out in terms of currency than w compared to what we have now. So I think it's much wiser to stay in and then to retain that opt-out than to come back and renegotiate without potentially that opt-out. Mm -hmm. There was quite an interesting uh, discussion um, the other day with some members of the public who, who said, well, I'm going to vote out and, you know, if we in a few years' time decide that it's not working, we'll just go back in again. Ian, you're shaking your head there. Uh, would it be very simple just to become a member of the European Union again after Brexit? No, I think it would be extraordinarily difficult. I don't think there would be any enthusiasm to let us back in again. I think, it, I mean, Brexit would be extremely destabilising. There would be the risk of people calling for a referenda in um, other European countries, and I think that that's what's going to mean that very, it's going to be very hard to get a, an attractive, any sort of attractive deal out of the negotiations that follow because there's, there'll be every incentive for the people negotiating on the other side to em emphasise their own citizens the cost of, um, of breaking away. And in terms of the difficulty in re-entering the European Union, some pretty nasty things have been said uh, on all sides of this debate so far. How, how important is, is bad feeling? in the European Union when it comes to negotiating deals either within if we vote to remain or outside if we vote to leave. Paul, do you have any thoughts on that? The phrase is used, but personally I've never come across anyone who's had an amicable divorce. <laughs> um, when people have divorces, they may pretend to be amicable, but it's difficult. All kinds of basic human emotions are involved and we'd be trying to negotiate in a context where people felt badly treated and all the rest of it. They're all the kinds of things that come up in a divorce. So it's a not a good context for trying to get a, a reasonable settlement, um, you know, with all the other member countries, if Britain actually were to leave. It would make the negotiations difficult, to put it mildly. Well, that's an interesting analogy. I hope our team have helped shed some light on the big issues facing British voters in the EU referendum. Ian Preston, Swati Dingra and Paul Whiteley, many thanks for joining me today. So lots of information in there, some great facts and figures from Swati Dingra and Ian Preston on how a Brexit would affect the UK economy. 
But as Paul Whiteley and Bill DeRodier point out, the way that people feel about the EU and the sense of it having too much power over the UK is at the heart of this debate. To round off the show, we've got our regular Ask an Academic slot. We figured it might be quite important to understand what will actually happen on June 24th, Brexit Day Zero, if Britain does decide to leave the EU. The academic is Anand Menon, Professor of European Politics at King's College London, and he's also head of the UK in a Changing Europe initiative. Asking him the questions, we've got Gemma Ware, our Education and Society Editor. There have been a lot of projections from both sides in the EU referendum campaign about what a Britain outside the EU would look like. Many of them are looking at the longer term. But what would actually happen the day after the referendum if the British public voted to leave the European Union? So, Anand, what would actually happen on June the 24th, the day after a Brexit? If the UK votes to leave, several things will happen quite quickly. I suspect that David Cameron will have to think about when to resign because I don't think his position will be tenable after the country has voted against a proposition that he has defended so strongly up and down the country. Whether he goes immediately or not, it's hard to say because there might be a case for him to stay in place and to start the initial negotiations with the other EU member states. Because the uncertainty of having voted to leave and having to choose a prime minister all at the same time would have very, very serious implications for the country. What I don't think will happen is what we used to call the Boris scenario before Boris committed himself to the leave side, which is that we would vote to leave, everyone would go, oh my God, we'd go and talk to our European partners, they'd offer us a few concessions, and then we'd vote again and decide to stay. I don't think there's any possibility of having a second vote simply for political reasons. So we're talking about a glide path towards leaving. And this will include us talking to our partners, us deciding when we trigger Article 50. It won't be up to us simply. I'm sure that the other EU member states, once we've had this decision, will be keen to get it sorted out as soon as possible. So I don't think they'll be very patient and will allow us to wait for too long before invoking Article 50. And what about citizens? What about EU citizens living in the UK or UK citizens living in the EU? Are they going to have to make plans pretty quickly? Well, no, there are several things here. One, Article 50 negotiations will take two years and they might take more. And nothing happens until those negotiations are out of the way, first and foremost. So there will be a long grace period of at least two years and possibly longer. Second, I find it inconceivable that either side will think, let's come to a deal whereby we have to start deporting people already in place. Both camps have intimated, I mean, particularly the Leave camp have intimated that this is not what they'd be seeking to do. People already here would be absolutely safe. And I know that the Spanish Prime Minister has been making noises about what happens to the Brits currently in Spain. My response to that would be, well, he would say that, wouldn't he, because he wants us to vote to stay. So I think anything that other heads of state or government say should be treated with a pinch of salt because they're angling for a certain outcome. My guess is, both because of practical reasons, out of humanity, if you like, and because of some residual rights under international law, that, in fact, people currently resident in another EU state of which they are not a citizen will be fine. And what happens if it's very, very close? A very, very close vote to leave on the back of a low turnout would, I think, still be fatal for David Cameron. But it might, I suppose, open up a little bit of space for whoever replaces him to say, look, this was very close. I'm going to go back. We're going to do it again. I still think that politically it's problematic. And it's problematic because so many of the people who want us to leave the EU 
have regularly criticised the EU for its willingness to rerun referenda in other countries. It puts them in a very delicate political situation to try that here. And just finally, I mean, if it's a stay, if it's a Remain vote, is it just going to be a big sigh of relief across Europe or will there be other ramifications? Well, let me say three things about that. The first thing is margin is crucial. If we vote by 70-30 to stay, then actually that changes everything and we have committed our future to the European Union. If it's a narrow vote, if it's again the 51-49 on a low turnout, then we can expect the Leavers to say it was rigged, we need to do it again. And if it's close, I suspect the political pressure to do this again will be immense. And within the next few years, we will. The third thing I would say is even if we vote to stay in by a significant margin, Britain will not become a normal, nice, constructive EU member. If we vote to stay in, we'll vote grudgingly, bad-temperedly, in a sullen kind of don't like the EU, but it all sounds a bit frightening to leave kind of way, which means that none of the political problems around our membership, either in the general public or in the Conservative Party, would have been resolved. And actually, we'll almost be back to square one. We hope that's helped you understand a bit more about the Brexit debate, especially if you'll be voting on June the 23rd. Next time on The Ant Hill, we're going to look at the psychology and folklore behind underdogs, the little guys we love to root for. A big shout-out to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios, and to Dave Goodfellow for all of his help. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and myself. The Conversation is funded by UK universities and research bodies. Check out our website, theconversation.com, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks to all the academics who spoke to us, and thanks to you for listening in. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.